Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Welcome to everybody. Back to services again this week. Just a reminder um, that we will be having our town hall next week. Some, some exciting things to talk about next week. I certainly encourage everyone to uh, stick around next week for the town hall. Uh, we will also have an update from Lisa from the board and also, doesn't know yet, but the uh, social committee will have we'll get an update from the social committee as well. So um, we're looking forward to that next week. There's some, uh, a couple of exciting uh, things we'd like to talk about next week. So, um, uh, Before we start, I'd like to take a quick survey from folks as to when you first found out about the truth, God, the church, you deem it whatever, deem it whatever, whatever moniker you want to call it, because um, uh, we've all come from different backgrounds, and uh, when you were called, let's put, let's, when, when God called you, um, um, for those of you, uh, just, uh, if you'd like to, just get some feedback as to the year, or the approximate year you were, you were called, I know the Kowalczyk's was late 90s, I think, I got that right over, right? Started in 1997. since you were born, so pretty much since all you guys were born. So, um, Just an interesting take on the cross-section of the congregation as to how long we've been at this. So I'm going to throw some dates out as we get started. 500 AD, 
April 6, 793. January 1, 1000. October 19, 1533. The year 1694. The year 1700. The year 1757. September 15, 1829. The range of years between 1840 and 1864. The year 1836. October 22, 1844. August 7, 1847. The year 1861, stay with me now, 1874, the year 1891, the year 1901, the year 1914, the range of years between 1917 and 1930, the range of years between 1930 and 1939, the individual years of 1935, 1943, 1972, and or 1975. June 21st, 1982, 1988, September 9th, 1994, the range of years between 1999 and 2009, the year 2000, April 6th, 2000, May 21st, 2011, October 21st, 2011, September 29th, 2011, May 27th, 2012, May 18th, 2013, the year 2012, the year 2025, the year 2028, and finally, the year 2057. These are all documented dates of people with strong religious followings who have predicted the date of Christ's return. This is going back to 500 AD, all the way through all of those dates, which I won't repeat, were strong people who valued God, who believed in the return of Christ, predicted the date of Christ's return. And here we sit, having flipped our calendars forward in the Gregorian calendar to 2014, and we are still waiting. And we're still here, and we're checking our watches, and we're saying, isn't, isn't enough is enough. We've, we've had people, very faithful people, not just, and we're going back, obviously, as far as we did, this is just not a Church of God phenomenon. This is a mankind phenomenon where we have been waiting seemingly for over 1,500 years from a documented point of view that somebody said he's going to be coming back. And we surveyed, we took time to survey you folks as to how long you've been waiting, all the way back from the 70s, into the 80s, some of the 90s, some as recently as 2010, have been waiting for Christ's return. Growing up in the faith, as some of you knew me as a, as a young guy, we were supposed to be the generation that would lead the, the church into the millennium. We were the ones going to be doing on the ground floor, doing the, ground, the work in the millennium. We were being that generation. Now, we're... A little, a little older than we were and probably like, not quite so as physically adept to be doing all the work to get into the land. Now we're teaching our young people, uh, several of you here, hoping that you will be those groups, those group of people that will be doing the work on the, on the ground, the rubber on, rubber on the road type of work in the millennium. And yet, we check our calendars and it's 2014. 
So as we look at 2014 and beyond, just a survey from the last few weeks in the news as to what we can look forward to this year. China's farmland, which I read an article two weeks ago in the news, has pollution levels that are post-apocalyptic. They, obviously, we know how big China is, over one and a half billion people, approaching quickly two billion, and they need a certain amount of arable land to be able to support themselves. And with the pollution levels that they are in certain areas, they are right now just at the, the limit of being able to support themselves. That's without any future population growth and without any improvements in pollution, which I can't imagine they're going, we're going to be able to stop on a dime and turn it around right now. So we've got the largest nation in the world not, not even capable of supporting themselves. And this is their own statistics. This isn't anything they're trying to sell us on China. But this is their, their own statistics. And their people don't even trust their own bottled water. At least here we, we drink bottled water and we trust it. There they can't even trust their own bottled water. Recently, a Chinese company, likely, of course, backed by the government, as most Chinese companies are, purchased, this is a different piece of news, but slightly related, a large U.S. food company with plants in 20 different states, employing tens of thousands of people, made possible in part by the large debt that our side of the world owes to China. They now own one of the largest food production companies in the United States. If we combine that with the food shortages that we're expecting over in China, because they simply can't support themselves, and they own one of these largest companies, who's getting this food uh, when there's a shortage? Not saying, you know, I, can only, I can only anticipate what's going to happen. So much to look forward to as we, as we flip the page to a new calendar year. We hear talk about the blood moons, which is something interesting that's, that's, that's happening. This, the, the full moon, when it's, it's shone red, is going, and these are special full moons, are taking place twice this year and twice next year on the holy days. On the, the first day of 11 bread, which is the 15th of the month, and on the first day of the feast, which is also the 15th of the month, this year and next year. So you can imagine the speculation that is going on with two sets of blood moons followed two years in a row. There was an article that has been making its rounds. Uh, again, this is a separate and changing years just a little bit with more, more news. There's an article that's been making its rounds that some of you have been reading that I've since found out is a satirical article. This is the article on the Pope. Uh, but it is interesting to read to read that this article that was uh, by the Pope on... Uh, it was a speech that he was supposed to have given to the Catholic Church, but this has since been debunked. It was a, it was a, it was a satirical website called the Diversity. It was a diversity magazine. Um, what it was based on, it, the entire article is not uh, completely false because it was based on little snippets of information that the Pope has said. It was sort of brought in together into a big article and extrapolated upon where he claims to have said that truth is relative, God evolves, every religion is, oh, this is the, the head of the Catholic Church uh, who, who we know what, what how long back the Catholic Church has gone with with their uh, dogma and their their standards of truth, that that hasn't changed, and there's inklings now that, that at least this pope 
is going to make an about-face where everything's acceptable, uh, truth is relative, and we can't, and truth is evolving, and God is evolving. And the phrase in this particular article was the fable of Adam and Eve. Um, now, uh, again, it has since come out that he didn't say these things specifically, but they are based on, on certain items he has said. What next? We've, we've, what else do we have to look forward to in 2014? These are just um, samplings of things that I've seen on the news websites as we've crossed into 2014. What will we face? What more will we face this calendar year? And again, this was not how it was supposed to go. This was supposed to have been ended a long, long time ago. Do we ever get tired of fighting this fight? When will this end? When will we actually turn the page of a Gregorian calendar and Christ actually will finally come back that year? Christ had a warning to his flock about a complacent attitude. We've read it before. But this warning, again, probably stems from centuries of watching his flock drop the ball and pick it back up and drop the ball and pick it back up. Like we've, we've talked about last year in the, in the uh, youth studies. Lose sight of our goals, and we see that fall back into complacency, get rescued. So as we start, let's go to Luke chapter 12 as we start. And we certainly don't look to man's calendar, but it is easy, as, as a human beings, when we do flip the calendar, to wonder, could this year be the year? Could this year be the year? We've been waiting for, two, as we know, well over 2,000 years, or approaching 2,000 years, actually, sorry, since he died in 31 AD. Approaching 2,000 years for his second return. But Luke chapter 12 tells us, if we look down and verse, cut into the context in verse 45, we've read this before, but we'll read it again. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, he begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And at that servant, and that servant who knew his master's woman, did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. We don't know when Christ is coming back. Clearly, no one knows because they've been predicting dates upon dates upon dates for well over 1,500 years now. Why hasn't God seen fit to send his son back? You would think from all the stuff that we actually know and how much more that we actually have not even heard of that is going on behind the scenes that we would have probably evoked at that time. We see the, the, the excitement in the religious world about these blood moves. Hasn't the world turned evil enough? We now have agricultural issues. Something as solid in, in structures the Catholic Church is now, at least that protected us from a religious standpoint. I'm not supporting the Catholic Church at all, but that we had some support from this great big organization. And now they're starting to falter where now there isn't a... Now, truth is becoming even relative to the largest Christian, quote-unquote, Christian church in the world. Again, the only positive thing out of this is 
Christmas is sort of is falling by the wayside, whereby it's now become a holiday. And that is sort of kind of protecting us in this, this terrible time of year that we've been through for Christmas, that it's not as blatant as it used to be when we were growing up. But it's amazing to see a church that has been as long solid as the Catholic Church has in their, in their doctrines is now starting to crumble. Haven't we done enough to, be, to warrant being rescued from this world? When, when, is that going, when is God going to look down, okay, 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 now's the time I've seen enough. Uh, it seems that it should have been long ago. James, the brother of Christ, the leader of the New Testament church, wrote a practical letter to us that we find. Lastly, to turn to James chapter 5. A practical letter concerning attitudes and actions affecting the spiritual life of the church. His themes follow Christ's own teachings closely in the Sermon on the Mount. It stands to reason who he was his brother. And it concludes with an appeal to the Christian's hope in the second coming of Christ. And that our faith should be a transforming force. It should, our faith should, along with God's Holy Spirit, should help change us and transform us into the people that he needs us to be. But the second coming of Christ should be what keeps us focused on doing what is right, day in and day out, doing our part for God, looking in the mirror, changing ourselves, helping to spread his gospel, not losing sight of why we strive in this life every day. When we look at James chapter 5, he has a practical piece of encouragement as he ends his letter. If we pick it up in verse 7, he tells us, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. When we read this and we see James's admonition to be patient, I can see Job. Job was suffered a lot. We can we go back and read the account of Job and all that he went through. We can see how Job learned patience through all that God put him through. We see the example of farmers. That I, I, I get the example of farmers being patient and how you don't just drop the seed and go uh, reap the rewards the next day, but it takes doing the right thing throughout the seasons to reap those rewards. But prophets, it tells us to be patient like the prophets. When we read the accounts of the prophets, we read people who stood on their soapboxes and preached repentance, and preached repentance now, and it was, you must do this now or, or risk the punishments that, that were going to result from your actions. There seems to be very little in the word in terms of patience from the prophets. Yet James here tells us to be patient like the prophets. And again, we go through all of their, their writings. This was this was a, a someone standing up on a soapbox trying to shake some sense into mankind, into God's people, saying, You need to repent, repent of your ways. Hardly sounds patient to me. And yet James tells us, be patient like the prophets. With all that's going on, 
as we flip the calendar page again for another year, wondering, will this year be the year? Let's take a look at why James asks us to be patient like the prophets. What kind of patience can we learn from the examples of the prophets? Turn with me as we start back to Isaiah chapter 1. We won't take time. The purpose of this message isn't to look at the message of the prophets, but the example of the prophets. And we'll see what the difference is here as we go through. And I started out by asking each of us how long we've been doing this. And the answers we got range from as far back as approaching 40 years, right up until two or three years ago. That's a big, wide range as to how long we've been doing, we've been at this. When we read Isaiah chapter 1, often the Bible is full of little details that we tend to skip over so we get to the message. But if we just read the first verse of Isaiah, there's a lot in there. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Often when we read that, we're concerned about maybe just pronouncing the names right. But he preached during the reigns of four kings. Four kings. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We'll be doing a lot of flipping around here at the start as we get through setting the foundation for what we're going to be talking about. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. Now flip ahead to chapter 27, verse 1. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Drop down the page to the first verse of the next chapter, 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. And then finally, over to 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah, verse 1, became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. When you combine these dates that are given here by the writer of Chronicles, combined with the historical record of Isaiah, he preached from approximately 740 B.C. to 695 B.C., approximately 45 years. The full reign of Jotham and Ahaz, 16 years each, part of Hezekiah's reign and part of Uzziah's reign, for 45 years. What kind of patience does it take to preach a call to repentance to the very people God calls his home and be ignored for 45 years? His message, when you go through Isaiah, is in part a call to repentance and a reminder that the onslaughts of all of these other nations that are coming down on God's people are the results of their sins. Nothing to do with these other nations. It's a result of the sins of God's people. And if they would only turn their back to God, he will protect them, he will save them, and provide them a way out, because God is superior to all of these nations. Forty-five years of constantly at the same message. 
and completely ignored. It's like they weren't even listening. We saw what he said about Ahaz, about how the people didn't, he did not do what was right in the sight of God, despite what his father David did. We're in Chronicles, so let's go to the 32nd chapter of Chronicles. We see chapter 30, when we go through the, the life of Hezekiah, we know he got that extra 15 years. He guided God's people back to the keeping of the holy days. Chapter 30 talks about how the people kept uh, the Passover. Chapter 31 talks about more of his reforms and how Hezekiah guided people back to God. Chapter 32, verse 32 tells us, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness... Indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, which we just read, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. So Isaiah preaches for this long period of time, and it gets to this fourth king, Hezekiah, who does things right. He tosses out all of the evil he gets people back following God's ways. They're following the Passover, keeping the holy days. God blessed him by giving him an extra 15 years. Remember that story where Hezekiah asked for an extra 15 years, and God gave it to him because, you know what? They were on the right track. He was doing something good here for the people. And now the acts of Hezekiah are saved because he was good. Someone finally heard what Isaiah was saying and decided to do something about it. Someone in leadership who was high enough to, to, to do that, and the people started to turn around. Then, the last phrase in verse 3, chapter 32, his son Manasseh reigned in his place. Continuing on, chapter 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The very next king threw it all away. If Isaiah could roll over in his grave, he would probably spit saying, what did I just waste all this time for? I wasted 45 years to finally see some progress, only to watch the very next guy fall it up and toss it away. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah was interesting. Before we get into the kings that he preached under, we look at verse 5. God tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah's was a lifelong call. His was life, God had set him apart from birth. And his was a lifelong calling. We'll go back to verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So we pinned it down to now Jeremiah starts in the thirteenth reign, year of the reign of Josiah. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, to the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. We'll read that for just a 
anxious to get on to what was Jeremiah actually talking about. But let's break this down a little bit. Let's go back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22. started in the 13th year. So so far we've got 18 years of Josiah's reign. The last 18 years of Josiah's reign. We go forward to chapter 23. Again, just, the whole message won't be like this. We're just going to set, set some things up here. Verse 31, chapter 23. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. So there's only three months here. And there's a whole lot of, of reasons why that we don't have time to go into today. Dropping down to verse 36, Jehoiakim reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So we've got 18 years of Josiah. And three months, Jehoiakim has 11 more years from Jehoiakim. Chapter 24 is down a few verses in chapter verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. And now off to Verse 18, chapter 24. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Why 11 years? Because Babylon then took them captive at the end of Zedekiah's reign. So we have 18 years, 11 years, 11 years, the two three-month periods. We have Jeremiah preaching for 41 years. And not only 41 years, Isaiah at least saw some progress. Jeremiah ends with the people going into captivity to the Babylonians. He's completely wasted his time, you would think, after over and over and over again for 41 years. As Babylon supersedes Assyria as the dominant power, Judah gains confidence, as we know, that, you know, we're God's special people. God's going to save us because we have the right. We have the truth, we have the temple, we have true religion. We don't need to do anything about this. God's just going to protect us. That's not what Jeremiah was trying to say. It it makes no difference to God if you're not actually following what he's saying. So Jeremiah, for 41 years, is preaching this to try to get God's people back in line to save them from themselves. This was not a glorified position to be a prophet. Sure, you had big scroll named after you and, and you get you get uh, um, eternity with this nice scroll with your name on it I wouldn't want to have gone through what they went through just to get their name on the start of the scroll 41 years, 45 years of beating your head against a wall worse than being a parent because your kids actually do listen to you more than half the time even though it feels sometimes like it's not. But our kids are good kids, and eventually the kids come around. God's people just simply didn't come around. 41 years, I'd have packed the bags and tossed them out. But God had, God had patience. He chose people with patience to keep this up because the message needed to get out there. The message needed to keep going because 
eventually some people would hear. Jeremiah 51, let's go to the end of Jeremiah's reign. Because Jeremiah simply wouldn't give up. Verse 59 of Jeremiah 51. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Let's back up a little. We remember we through 30 years until the time Zedekiah took over. And now we're four years into his 11-year reign. So we're basically 34 years into Jeremiah's preaching. So Jeremiah wrote in a book, he's still going. After 34 years, he's still doing what God asked him to do. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, and all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it, and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off, so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink, and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. He was still trying to tell the people that God's going to look after these Babylonians if you would only follow God. That he's not here trying to persecute and punish Israel and God's people, Judah, to the point of death. He was using Babylon to get the message across. And eventually he would deal with Babylon, much like he talked to Habakkuk when Habakkuk couldn't understand either. And he said, listen, I'll deal with these people. My people need to do things right. And yet, 34 years, they still continued to ignore him to the point where seven years later, they were taken into captivity. Ezekiel, we don't know much about him specifically from scripture the way the others are. He was obviously a young priest in training. He was part of the people of Jude that were actually taken captive by the Babylonians at the end of Jeremiah's prophesied. And we see the, the visions and the, the prophecies that he wrote from within captivity. Let's go to Hosea chapter 1. One of these, the start of what we call a minor prophets. Hosea chapter 1. Minor because their prophecies were shorter in writing. And interesting what we read in verse 1 of the start of Hosea chapter 1. See if you like getting back to Deacon Jan's message on memory last week. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash king of Israel. Hosea was writing and prophesying the exact same time frame. Different part. Different part of where God's people were. But the same time frame as Isaiah. Speaking against the worshiping of foreign gods, which was, we know, one of the major downfalls of God's people. And the time that had to come to the return of worshiping the holy God of Israel or face the consequences. And again, he we won't go over the map again, but he preached somewhere in the neighborhood of between 30 and 50 years, depending on when he specifically started during the reign of Uzziah. Again, these prophets that simply wouldn't give up, 
preaching. Didn't matter how many people came aboard, didn't matter how many people walked through the doors, they simply wouldn't give up. They had a job to do regardless of who would listen, regardless of if, if no one listened. They would continue year upon year upon year. Change the calendar, change the calendar, 740 BC, 739 BC, new calendar, they would continue preaching. Let's go to Daniel. We know that Daniel, from a young boy, a young man, served God through at least five different kings. We can see this. This will be the last example we use here. Chapter 1 and verse 1, from a time frame here, tells us, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So again, tying in the end of Jeremiah's reign into the captivity under the Babylonians. So he reigned during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which we know all about. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So Daniel is still functioning for God. Chapter 5, we know from the history of Daniel. Now transitioned over to Belshazzar's reign. And then we know years later, Again, we can go to uh, the end of chapter 5, verse 30. That Darius the Mede took over. The transition came from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the Mede took over. In combination with chapter 10, verse 1, Cyrus became a Persian. So I know we're just hitting highlights here, but it's all these little tidbits when we go through these that actually when you bring them together and bring them down onto the same time frame whether it be chart form or, or bringing them together, they actually have some significance, all of these little little parts to God's Word. When we go to the end of Daniel, we know all that Daniel did, we know the example he set, uh, praying out in the open, that he did not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't uh, uh, succumb to the, the demands of, of the government of the time, the empires of the time, it's a great example of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They followed in his example all the great things that Daniel did for God, writing down these prophecies that we, that we see here, trying to get God's people to change. And then, verse 9 of chapter 12, God says to him, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. You've done what I've asked you to do. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. And okay, we won't go into that today. But you, verse 13, you go your way until the end, for you shall rest. And you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel did what God wanted him to do. Year upon year, king upon king, it didn't matter who was in leadership, Daniel did what God asked him to do. And he was rewarded by saying, all that work that you did matters not that hardly anyone listened. But you go your way, we'll seal this up, and people will be blessed by your service. And you, you have ran your race. Go rest until it's time for to be resurrected. 
again, interesting to see how the prophets all intertwine, that they're not just when we sometimes read scripture and go from front to back, it, it can look at just individualized people, but we see how not only they intertwine, many of them also were contemporaries and spoke at the same time. These are just five examples where we can determine in part the extent of their ministries. Can you again can you imagine 45 years? We've been here for a year, it feels like two or three. This that's nothing compared to what Isaiah went through, nothing compared to what Jeremiah did. We've got it good, apart from the ice storms that sort of uh, inconvenienced us for a few days, we've got it pretty easy, not compared to what these pillars of faith went through for 40 and 45 years. Why keep it up? Why continue to do this when no one listens? Let's go to Hebrews 11. We're studying about the Hebrews. So let's jump ahead in the, the account from where we are at the end of chapter 5 to chapter 11. I've said this before, but when I remember when I was a young boy, one of the ministers at the church I attended referred to this as the Hall of Faith rather than the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith. Verse 13 tells us why they kept it up. Why for 40 and 45 years they continued to preach. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and recalled God's message to Daniel at the end, to rest. We're assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared the city for them. They knew that they were sojourners here on this earth, that their life wasn't about the comforts of this life. It didn't matter that this life became a little uncomfortable for them, that they did a task and there was no seeming reward in this life for it. Their reward was knowing that they were doing God's work for it and they could see in their mind's eye this great kingdom that was sitting standing afar off, that they had a small bit to play in this grand plan of God's to help get some of God's people closer to his kingdom. And that's what drove them on, year after year after endless year. Regardless of the circumstances, that's why their messages, while ones of urgency, their perseverance in continuing to preach, regardless of circumstances, regardless of the uncomfortability of the life that they, they were leading compared to the comfortability of the life they could have had, is an amazing, amazing example of patience. Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. When we think of the name of Noah, we think of the ark builder. But while he's building for 120 years, imagine in, an, in, the de, in a desert area, building a grand, huge boat that's going to save his family. There's got to be some conversations going on here. Not even Noah building this boat in the desert because something's going to happen 
to flood the world. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. A preacher of righteousness. Noah preached, indeed, and I'm sure, in, in, in talk. We don't have a record of what he said, but you can't be building for 120 years in the middle of the desert, this great big boat, and not have a conversation or two with somebody. A preacher of righteousness. These are all exa- excellent examples of what James would be referring to when he, had, when he told us to be patient, like the prophets. Each of us have been through a lot since we came into the faith. We surveyed the group here. And we're, after a year, we're starting to get to know each other, and we know some of our experiences that we've all been through. We could write, write a book, at least each of us, on what we've been through, individually and collectively. And a lot of what we've been through probably we could deem unfair. From the places we've been back with going to a feast site of 10,000 people, a, being part of a church that was had the top TV show, uh, the top, top program, top one or two programs on Sunday mornings on a prime time slot with 150,000 people going to the Feast of Tabernacles with little green stickers on your car that you wave at people going by. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do know what I'm talking about. To this. There's not a whole lot of us left anymore. And yet, it's 2014 and we're still here. Come with me to John chapter 21. Because Peter, as he was developing his leadership, he got a little irritated with Christ about how unfair it was going to be for him. And we see this in John chapter 21, we know the story where Christ asked him three separate times, do you love me? And then instructed him to feed the sheep. Verse 18, let's pick it up in verse 18. Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Christ simply said to him, follow me. I'm not hiding anything from you. You're going to lead a life that's going to end in a painful death. Follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the favorite child, said, well, what about him? What about this man, Lord? I hope he's going to have to go through the same thing I'm going to have to go through. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If John is going to lead the cushiest, most easy life, that has nothing to do with you. You follow me. God is not delaying his coming. Father's not delaying sending Christ back. Christ is not up to other stuff and up to more important things. He's simply waiting word from his Father when it is time to come back. So where does that leave us today? Let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. I apologize for that. 2 Peter chapter 3. Where does that leave us today? 
we know, we've read, we've talked a lot about what's been in the news the last few weeks. And that's just what we do know. The end of Peter's second letter, he says this, verse 10 of chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He goes through there in verse 10 a lot of scary stuff. Go with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We're not going to go through specifically all of these seals and trumpets, but there is a lot that has to happen before Christ has to come back. And we see here, through the prophecy, this revelation that God gave John to write down for us, these seals that need to be opened. When we look at chapter 6, the second seal, a lot of conflict on the earth. The third seal, lack of food. The fourth seal, widespread death. Cosmic disturbances, we don't have time to go through them in detail, but there's a lot that has to go on. All of the, the lack of food, the disease, the stuff that's going to happen in the heavens. The, then we get to the seventh seal, which is the seven trumpets. Uh, we see that in chapter 8. The, again, the food supply will be, will, be, will be damaged. The seas will be struck as, as it's captioned in my Bible. The, the earth, the heavens, will all, will all have calamities. And then we get, before we get down to this mighty seventh trumpet that we celebrate on the, seventh, the Feast of Trumpets, where Christ will actually descend. But between now and then, there's a lot of calamity that we are going to have to go through. When we go back to 2 Peter, let's go back there now. Let's go back to 2 Peter. This is what Peter is talking about when he talks about all of these elements that will happen. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. John gives us a little more of a description there in the, in the book of Revelation of all of these little events that are going to have to happen. Then Peter asks the million-dollar question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Despite all that's going on around, whether our food supply will be cut short because of the amount of this, these nations that the Chinese folks own, whether these cosmic disturbances, these blood-red moons that are going to be happening this year, that shouldn't change us. It shouldn't change our plans. It shouldn't change the work that we need to do for God. It shouldn't change the work that we need to do together as a community and individually to make ourselves better for God and prepare us for the second coming of Christ. It shouldn't change us. As Peter says here, what manner of persons are you going to be? Despite all of this stuff that's going around, that are distractions, it can't help. It can't cause us to lose focus. Let's go to Philippians. 
the first chapter of Philippians. There's, we studied the book of Philippians earlier this year. We know what a solid congregation they were. They were good people who for a long period of time continued in the faith, growing together as a community. We can see that in verse 3 where Paul compliments them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Completely confident they were, that they were so on the right track, that as long as they stayed on track, God would complete his work in them when Christ returns. Just as, in verse 7, continuing, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how long, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Great, solid, founded congregation which we know about, we studied in detail earlier this year. But Paul would not let them rest on their laurels. Look what he says in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. He gave them things to do. They were a great congregation. They were his finest, his crown jewel. But he said, you still need to grow in love and knowledge. So while you are good, while you're on the right track, and if you continue on this track, he sees no reason why they will not be there when Christ returns. But they were to continue to grow in love and in knowledge and discernment. So we have some things to do too. This has been a great year. We flipped the calendar here. There's lots. Again, tune in next week for the town hall. There's lots, lots on our plate for this coming year as we continue to continue to be better for God, to do more for God, to to be there and help preach his gospel in our little corner of the, of the world here. But we're admonished through God's message to the Philippians to love more and to learn more. Why love more? Psalms 133. Let's go there. We're winding down here in five or ten minutes. Psalms 133. It's important to love the brethren more. We talk here a lot about community. But God tells his people through the psalmist David how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. To be considered brethren, we need to be together. We need to understand each other. We need to continue to develop our bonds. And he describes it as we know there in verse 2 and 3 in two different aspects here. It's like the precious oil running down upon the beard of Aaron running down on the edges of his garments. And it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of the Lord. For there the Lord commanded his blessing life forevermore. It's like his Holy Spirit described there with the oil that anoints Aaron. And it's like this dew in this arid area that would have this one particular part of Israel with good vegetation. That's what it does to God's people. It allows His Spirit to unite us. It allows us to feel that we, when we come together on Sabbath, it's not just Sabbath, whenever we come together, when we, when we have the, the sense of community, that we're in this together, that 
this long, whether it be 10, 20, 30, 40, 45 years of longer, that we're in this together. We go back to Galatians chapter 6, looking first at Paul's admonition to love the brethren. We know that we are to be taking the gospel over, to be showing people what this life, all the good that this life that God has called us to is. But there's something special about being together. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 6, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For you sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So continue doing the right things because they are the right things. We can't get tired of doing the right things. When, If this is your 40th year and you've been at this for 40 years, we're going to do it for 41. And then next year, we'll do it for 42 if he hasn't come back by then. We can't grow weary of doing what is right. Therefore, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. That is God's way. But especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because this is this community that we talk about. Because Paul admonished the Philippian brethren that their love may abound more. As good as they were, they needed to be better. And also to love truth. Love God's truth. Love his, his word. We are dissecting the book of Hebrews. We know all that it says about truth. Let's go to 2 Timothy to see what Paul says to Timothy about truth. The importance that we place on knowledge, on truth, when we see religious organizations that have centuries of preaching the same thing now start to say that, eh, it's relative. Eh, God evolves. Eh, truth is whatever you make up on a certain day. That's not what God says. That's not what God says at all. Second Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul admonishes Timothy in verse 14, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, continuing in what we've learned. Continuing means patience. Continuing means keeping at it. As we conclude, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, where Rachel read from us today. So we see Paul's admonition to the Philippians that as impressed as he was with them, it was his job to encourage them to do more. It was his his duty to encourage them to be better, to love the brethren more, to love God's truth more, to grow in love and to grow in knowledge. And we see here what was read to us today, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. And all these, having gone through Hebrews 11 with all of the heroes of faith, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, didn't receive the promise. They spent their lifetime following God, and yet at the end of it, had death to show for it. They didn't, it didn't come in their lifetime. Didn't receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Notice this community reference here 
that those people aren't going to be made perfect apart from us. We're all in this together. These heroes of faith are as much part of God's plan as we are. But they're not going to be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Think back to some of the witnesses that you, look, you have looked up to. You have biblical heroes, prophets that preached for 40 and 45 years, kings that turned nations around. But there are others in our lives that we look up to. We look at Frank Fleck that now rests. We look at Alex Kennedy's wife who now rests. I'm trying to think back to all those who have lived their lives that we know. And you can think back in your, in your life, in your mind's eye, to all the people that you've known that have spent their lifetime following God that now rest. They are also part of the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. We look around at each other here, people that have been doing this for 30 and 40 years. People that have been doing it for 5 or 10. People that have also been doing it for 30 or 40 years. When we look around at each other and continue to build this community, we are amongst ourselves a great cloud of witnesses that can help keep each other going. Because we, as we get to know each other, we get to know our stories, we get to know, as we talked about at the beginning, mid-80s, early 70s, 1992, 1997, 1985, We've all got stories to tell. We've all got encouragement that we can give each other based on God bringing us from all of these different parts at all of these different times and have brought us together in this little room together to continue to see the way to his kingdom. Each week we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in scripture, a great cloud of witnesses that we talk together, a great cloud of witnesses that we share a service together. Folks who have forsaken the comfortable to hang on to the truth. As we embark on another year in this calendar known as 2014, hoping that maybe one or two more of these seals will be broken this year that will be that much closer to the return of Christ. Let's do it together. Let's continue on what we're doing. Building this community. Taking this gospel where we can together. We can't do it individually. We do it together. And how did all these folks endure to the end? How did Isaiah continue to do it for 45 years? How did David do it? How did all of these people we read about, how did our friends that have now died in faith, they did it with the patience of the prophets. Something that we need to have to endure to the end. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.